Hey, as I mentioned, we are starting our Christmas series today. Uh, ref- it's titled, What Does Christmas Tell Us About? And then it mentions four characters. And you would look at this slide and say, there's another mistake on here, because the order is actually Jesus, God, Satan, and us, not God, Jesus, Satan, and us. So we're just full of mistakes this morning, and it's a good thing that we serve a God of grace, right? And because... Uh, and, and you are gracious as well. I'm not going to anticipate any hate emails from these little mistakes from you guys. So, so thanks for your grace towards me. It's kind of a hectic time of the year, hectic season. So uh, next week we are going to be discussing what does Christmas tell us about uh, God. However, Dr. David Ritter is going to be here preaching. My wife and I and our family are heading to Minnesota to celebrate my brother's wedding next weekend. And uh, so Dr. Dave Ritter will be here to discuss what does Christmas tell us about God. And we actually have a special guest musician coming in as well. So it's going to be a phenomenal week. I really encourage you to be here. I'm excited, and I'm going to be missing it. So I'm going to be lamenting over that and and wishing I was here with you guys. But uh, it'll be good to celebrate my brother's wedding. So what does Christmas tell us about Jesus? You know, every year I think this weekend uh, tells us what the heart of America is like. And, and I, don't, I don't mean Thanksgiving weekend because we're in Thanksgiving weekend. I mean uh, Black Friday. <laughs> That's really what I mean. Uh, I think Black Friday really tells us what the heart of America is like. You know that there are roughly 310 million people in America, and 152 million people went shopping on Friday. Half of our nation went to a store to buy some sort of Christmas present on Friday. And as those 152 million spent their times in the store, each one of them spent on average $400 And as we as a nation spent nearly $61 billion on Friday on stuff, chaos ensued. Because chaos always ensues on Black Friday, right? Uh, There's a generic principle of law, uh, there's a generic principle of supply and demand that states that anytime the demand becomes greater than than the supply, that chaos will be the result. And so what I mean by this is throw a loaf of bread, you know, into a room of starving people, and they're going to fight over it, and chaos will be the result. Or in our context, throw a discounted video game in front of a mom of uh, teenage moms, not teenage moms, mothers of teenagers, more like it, and, uh, and you'll see what I mean, right? They're going to fight and they're going to brawl, and it happens every single year, and this year was no exception, right? There are cases of shoppers pepper spraying each other in their attempt to get products. There are multiple shootings throughout the country over discounted products. There are multiple holdups at people's cars, uh, stealing the things that they had just purchased, uh, there are several bomb attempts, and that's no different this year. There are several bomb threats. And every year there are reports of people being nearly trampled to death. And in one case, a few years ago, someone was actually trampled to death trying to get into a Walmart to get to a bin of discounted video games. And so chaos ensues, right? And really, this is the unofficial start of Christmas. This is how we begin Christmas in America. Black Friday, the craziness. This is how we begin Christmas. You know, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite Christian thinkers, he condemned Christmas uh, because of this kind of thing. And he didn't even have a Black Friday in his day. Can't imagine what he'd say now. He condemned Christmas on three accounts. He said this, First, by the time the 25th of December rolls around, everyone is already physically worn out by weeks of daily struggle in overcrowded shops, mentally worn out by the effort to remember all the right recipients and to think of suitable gifts for them. No one is in the mood for merrymaking, much less to take part in some religious act. We're all just exhausted by the time Christmas comes around because this month is exhausting. Second, he said, things are given as presents. I love this one. Things are given as presents which no mortal ever bought for himself. Gaudy and useless gadgets, novelties because no one was ever fool enough to make their like before. Have we really no better use for materials and for human skill and time than to spend them on all this rubbish? 
And lastly, he said that he lamented the fact that life still goes on through this rubbish and racket, right? You, you still have to go to work every day. You still have to go regular grocery shopping. You still have to get the, the normal things, your car fixed, the, uh, the oil change, and you still have to live life. And yet there's Christmas thrown on the top of it, and it's just chaos, and it's craziness, and it's exhausting. He concluded by saying this, We are told that the whole dreary business must go on because it is good for trade. It is, in fact, merely one annual symptom of that lunatic condition of our country, he's in England, and indeed the whole world in which everyone lives by persuading everyone else to buy things. I don't know the way out, but can it really be my duty to buy and receive masses of junk every winter just to help the shopkeepers? Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody! (laughs) You know, we call people like Lewis a Scrooge or a, a Grinch. Man, get with the spirit, Lewis. Come on, man. And yet I kind of get it. Because, you know, for me, it's like every time I drive up North Oxford Valley 1 as I approach the highway of North Oxford Valley and 1, I kind of run to rip my hair out. And anybody else feel that way? You just want to scream a little bit. You feel your blood pressure boiling inside of you. It's like it's crazy. The excitement of the season is seemingly always coupled with a great amount of stress, is it not? How many of you have thought, man, my children are expecting Christmas gifts, and I have no idea where I'm going to come up with the funds to purchase my kids' gifts. And you start to feel bad. You start to pity your situation. And the stress becomes anxiety, which becomes worry. How many of you have taken that uh, Christmas light not out of the box, and you fumed as you spent half your morning trying to untangle it? You know, when I, uh, when I put up our lights, it was actually a couple weeks ago now, I, I put up our lights and uh, I took them out of the box and I spent my half hour untangling all the lights and then I actually put the lights backwards on the house. Did you know you could actually put your lights on backwards? Our plug was on one side of the house and the end that was supposed to be plugged in was now on the other side. So I had to rip all the lights down and put them all back up. Stupid mistake, I know, I get it. Has anyone ever come home to, uh, to realize that your dog has eaten one of your ornaments? Or that your dog peed on your Christmas tree? Or that your dog knocked over your Christmas tree and it shattered all your grandmother's handmade ornaments? Your toddler? Yeah. Oh, Luke. Oh, man, that kid. Different time, different place. How many of you, how many of you have gone to the store and you're like, you, you, you go to the Lego aisle because you're, that's all your eight-year-old wants, right, is a, is a Lego and... And you're like, oh man, okay, I gotta, I gotta buy my kid a Lego because that's all he wants, and there's just nothing left. The store is just sitting empty. And you're like, well, I hope my son will like a Barbie doll because that's all there is, you know? <laughs> there's, no, there's, no, there's no other hope. Oh, but of course there's hope because there's Amazon, right? Who shops anymore? Nobody goes to stores anymore. There's Amazon. I was at a grocery store yesterday, and a woman said, Amazon is my savior. And, and right? I mean, come on, Amazon. Should be praised. It's awesome. But Amazon is my savior. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And yet there are a lot of people out there that love Christmas. How many guys love Christmas? You love the craziness, right? We love the craziness. We love the lights and the cookies and the displays and the, and the spirit of the air, right? We spent all morning yesterday decorating this place. Why? Because we love Christmas. We love the spirit of Christmas. But notice this. Whether you love it or you hate it, this is what you get. This is all the world offers us, man. This is the package that Christmas offers us. Money and greed and decorations and lights and stress and trees and money and greed and presents and entitlement and fit throwings and money and greed and cookies and parties. This is the Christmas we get. There's no way around it, right? You can't avoid Christmas in this fashion. 
It's just one jumbled mess of delight and stress. It's what we get. It's what the world offers us. And so whether you like it or hate it, you get it because this is what the world has created. You can't change it. You're not going to change the store's minds. This is what you get. And as much as we try to make Christmas about Jesus and focus on the reason for the season, it all kinds of gets lost under the lights and the cookies and the presents. And, and even those sacred moments, I think, even those sacred moments get twisted into worldly longings, I think. You know, in 1998, when NSYNC released their Christmas album, and yes, we all did love NSYNC in the 90s, you know? Come on, come on, be honest with me. All right, I'm not the only one who loved NSYNC. Come on, guys, you all, you all, you're there with me. They, <laughs> they, gave, they gave the world hope that, that they actually understood the meaning of Christmas. Do you know that they actually came out with a song called This is the Meaning of Christmas? Here's what they said. Looking back on childhood days, I can't believe my foolish ways. I, I thought that Christmas only came from a store. I had to know that there was more for me underneath the Christmas tree. I didn't know that there could be so much more. I mean, that's hopeful, right? I mean, they're about to speak some truth into our lives. This is going to be good. But in all the rush, I was missing so much. Girl, you made me finally see that I never knew the meaning of Christmas till you came into my life. And now we all want to vomit. Yeah, I get it. I, I get that same feeling. It's okay. You're not alone. Girl. <laughs> you know, if, if, uh, if Christmas didn't bring in $600 billion, $600 billion, the world wouldn't care about it. The, the, the world wouldn't give it the time of day. The world uses Christmas as propaganda to sell us stuff. Because at what other time are you like, hey, you know, Emily, you know, we should go into the woods and we should cut down a tree. And we should drag it home, and we should put it in our living room. Wouldn't that be a great idea? <laughs> what, other time, what other time of the year are you like, man, that sounds like an awesome idea. Dude, it's, it's, it's idiotic that we do this. That we put trees up in our living room. I mean, there's great history to it, don't get me wrong. But like, come on. What other time of the year are we like, hey, let's go cut down a tree and, uh, and spend $100 doing this, and then we can put it in our living room. Isn't that awesome? That's a great idea. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? The... the, the the world wouldn't hand you a Christmas tree just so that you could feel merry about the season. If you weren't willing to spend $80 on that Christmas tree, the world isn't just going to hand it to you. Right? Farmers wouldn't be literally established for the sole purpose of growing pine trees if you weren't willing to spend 80 bucks on it. The world wouldn't supply you with Christmas lights just so you could feel merry. The world wouldn't give you cookie dough for free so that you could shape it into a snowflake so that you would feel good about the Christmas cheer all around you. If we weren't willing to spend $600 billion on these things, they wouldn't care. The world wouldn't promote it. They wouldn't be prominent. They wouldn't be advertised. But we are. We're willing to spend the money, and so the world buys into it, and we buy into the world. And so 200 years ago, Christmas gifts weren't even given. Did you guys know this? 200 years ago, Christmas gifts weren't even given as a tradition. Christmas was a day to celebrate the birth of Christ and nothing more. It was a true religious holiday. And all it took was for one simple shop owner to publish an ad before Christmas suggesting that patrons supply a small gift to their loved ones, such as the wise men did for Jesus. It's all it took. One shop owner to put one ad in the newspaper say, hey, wouldn't it be nice if you got your wife a small gift for Christmas this season? Wise men brought Jesus gifts. Maybe you should do the same. And so it began. 
But what the shop, co- what the shop owners realized was that most people were just creating small crafts for one another. That's all they were doing. They were, they were taking wood and they were carving it into an ornament and they were giving it to their loved ones. That's all they did. And so the shopkeeper said, well, we've we got to get ahead of this, right? And so they started making partially assembled products, giving the buyer the ability to personalize it and put the finishing touches on it. It makes it feel like it's homemade, but you don't have to do all the work. Isn't that great? But why stop there, right? Wouldn't covering the gift up give a heightened effect to the anticipation of receiving a gift, right? We love that. We, we love that all of our gifts just aren't under the tree. We love the wrapping paper. We love ripping it apart. We love the anticipation and the expectation of what could be under the wrapping. And so as gifts became increasingly more from stores and factories, paper and string helped redefine an object to meet its social use. Grander stores began to wrap gifts purchased from their stock in distinctive colored paper, tinsel cord, and bright ribbons as part of their delivery services. And so the paper advertised the material status associated with shopping at a particular store. And so you're Mr. Smith, right? And you come home from the factory one day, you've been working a long day, and, and you see your neighbor uh, come home from the, the factory, and, but he has a, uh, a box that's wrapped in red ribbon and, uh, and green paper. And you're like, oh man, I, I, I know what, where he got that. I, I know what store wraps their packages that way, and I can't believe he can afford that. Can you believe he can afford that for his, can you believe that? That guy must be making a ton of money. Um, may, may, maybe I should give my wife something like that. May, may, I'm going to feel like an idiot if my wife talks to my neighbor and, 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 and they start talking about what they got for Christmas and he got his wife something super expensive from that super expensive store and I got my wife some crappy homemade, homemade ornament. Come on, man. It's like, this is where the meeting, uh, the keeping up with the Joneses began. Man, you, you, you start wrapping things in certain paper and it has a status to them. And people want to live up to that status because they're going to feel foolish if they don't. And so the, the meaning of the keeping up with the Joneses began with Christmas. And, and over the next 200 years, Christmas developed into a festival of greed. All because a simple shop owner suggested someone purchase a small present for a loved one. Well, the thing was, right, the next year as Christmas rolled around, those loved ones felt an obligation to give again. It wasn't a one-and-done thing. It's like, man, I got her something last year. I got to get her something again. But, man, what I got her last year, that simple little ornament, man, it's got to be a little more grander. It's got to be a little more expensive. It's got to be a little better. And so the bigger and better mentality started. And every year, this thing has, has snowballed and rolled over and avalanched. And so pay attention to this. Over time, as this has snowballed and avalanched, the average child in America today will now receive $300 in Christmas gifts. And the worst part is, they expect it. They expect it. Our kids expect these gifts, and every time there is an expectation, there is also an entitlement. And every time there is entitlement, there is an enslavement of the mind. And here is the curse of Christmas. When our mind is enslaved to entitlement, this belief that we deserve something, right? Our kids expect something, they deserve something. When our minds are enslaved to entitlement, our minds cannot be free to explore a different truth. And so go ask my kids what the meaning of Christmas is, and they're going to say, presents. Because that's all that's on their mind. They're excited about the, the, the 25th of December because they get to open all of these presents. They're $300 worth of presents. And isn't it wonderful? Their minds are enslaved to the entitlement that they expect out of Christmas. And so sure, we can go through the religious motions, right? We can come to our Christmas Eve service. We can come here on Sunday mornings. We can stand up for the, the reason for the season and we can put Christ back in Christmas. And if entitlement exists, if entitlement exists, the meaning of Christmas will just fly above their heads. One article said this, when we have so much, right, that's what entitlement, the expectation, when we have so much, 
we create the belief that we don't have problems. We've bought into the notion that the accumulation of stuff is the goal for life. So in a capitalistic society like America, stuff has become our savior. Think the woman in the grocery store saying, Amazon is my savior, right? Stuff has become our savior. And in turn, the providers of this stuff have become our gods. And as stuff has become our savior, then who cares about Jesus? The one who saves. That's what Jesus means, the one who saves. All our problems can be met by accumulating more things. Isn't that great? So let Christmas be what it is. Let it be the worldly holiday that it is. But I think we all know that this isn't the case. I think we feel it deep inside in our gut. I think we feel this, right? Because surrounding yourself with, surrounding yourself with more stuff isn't going to make you feel less lonely. For those of you who are lonely today in this holiday season, surrounding yourself with stuff is not going to take that away. Buying more things isn't going to help you be less angry. Shopping more won't help you become more patient. Spending more money is not going to help you discover your purpose and meaning in life. Nothing in a box is going to take away the sin that so easily ensnares us. And so this series is really designed to help us understand the meaning of Christmas. Not so much what the world is trying to convince us of, but understanding what the Bible is trying to teach us about Christmas. And so understanding that in the beginning, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, right, they rejected his love, they rejected the love of God, they began to experience what life was going to be like when they put selfishness as their king. And, and the life they, they now experience, they didn't like. And it was horrible. They, they were bickering and fighting and they were selfish and, and they didn't care about the other. And, and there was, there was a, a bitterness and stress and anxiety and fear and worry and all these things they'd never experienced for all of a sudden came flooding into their lives. They're like, wow, we rejected God, we rebelled against God, and now life is horrible. Th- this thing called death that God promised would come if we, were, if we ate of the tree, yeah, man, it's horrible. We don't like this. We don't want this. This is not what we were created for. And they understood that and they knew it. Deep down inside in their gut, in their heart, they knew that this life, now that they were living this life of sin and of death and of chaos, this was not the life that they were created for. It was toil and it was burdensome. It was enslavement and it was bitterness. And this is the universal human condition. I don't know if you guys recognize this, but this is all of our problem. Every single one of us born into this world has the same problem. Here is where every single story starts. We are apart from God. We are separated from God. Sin has created a gap that we cannot cross. Right? Sin has taken the very life of God and unplugged it from our chest, and now we are empty and longing inside. Every single one of us has this experience. This is where the story begins, my friends. And so what do we do, right? We, 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 we shop and we eat and we bake and we buy and, we, and we, uh, we sing and we do all of these things and this is the life that we live and we're trying to close the gap. Did you know that every single decision you make, every behavior you choose to engage in, you are all trying to close the gap? That's what you're trying to do? You're trying to fill yourself with, with meaning and with purpose? That is why you choose to eat the food you do. That is why you watch the shows you do. That is why you buy the things you do. This is why you wear the clothes you do. This is why you hang out with the people you do. You are trying to close the gap between you and God. You were trying to find his life. You were trying to fill the void with meaning and with purpose, with something that is going to be substantial. And so what do we do in America? Well, we go shopping, right? Because, man, maybe if I have the latest, greatest outfit, then people will like me. Maybe I have the greatest, latest technology, then I'm going to feel superior. Maybe I'm going to find some meaning in that. Or we, or we turn to drugs and to sex and to alcohol, and we, and we do all these other things, right? We're all trying to close the gap. We're all trying to fill the void 
Everything we do and how we do it is our attempt to fix the problem. We're all trying to fix the problem created by Adam and Eve eating of that very first tree. And so this enmity, right, this enmity, this uh, enmity is a word that means the hatred for our condition that God put within us. It, it drives us to try and get rid of it and to, and to fill the gap with something. And so in America, we shop and Christmas tells us, Christmas tells us that, man, in this time of the year, man, shopping can be your savior, Amazon can be your savior. More stuff can be your savior. You want to close the gap? You want to fill the hole? Stuff can be your savior. But what Christmas tells us, what Christmas tells us about Jesus is that in this child, God has fixed the problem that we are all longing for. That God has fixed the problem in Jesus Christ that we are all longing for to be fixed. God told Eve amidst the horror, right, right at the very beginning, she, she eats of the tree, they have a little conversation. This is what God tells Eve immediately after. He, she, he says that uh, he will send a child to crush the serpent's head, to take the lies and, and the pain and the chaos and the horror, and he would do away with it through a child. And then later in the book of Isaiah, when the Israelites were experiencing famine and hardship, God says he would right the world through a child. That somehow through a child, all of the world would stand right up again. Somehow the meaning of Christmas is that through a child, we are set free. That the process of correcting all the wrongs and fixing all the brokenness has begun in a child named Jesus. And because these were human problems, because they were our problems, because we were the ones who needed fixing. God didn't need fixing. God was still perfect and right and true. We were the ones who were in our sin. We needed a human representative. And so what does Christmas actually tell us about Jesus? It tells us not only that he, being in the very nature of God, that he was in the very nature of God, but that he was a baby, but he was a fully human baby. And so do not let this wash over you without consideration. This is very, very important to the conversation. Jesus was a fully human baby. This isn't a story like the Greeks told about the gods coming from the heavens but remaining fully divine, denying the filthy human experience. That This isn't a story of a man that had the divine occasionally come upon him like all the agnostics were trying to teach back in their day. Uh, This isn't a story of the divine only appearing to be human like some of the mystics were suggesting. No. In Jesus, God is both fully and completely human and fully and completely God. Do not let this go to waste on you. It is crucial to the argument. God is fully human. God is fully, Jesus is fully God. You know, we are told that in Matthew 1, that Jesus' mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived, right? It may not have been in a typical way, but he was still conceived. An egg in Mary's fallopian tube became fertilized, beginning a rapid process of cell multiplication. An amniotic sac enveloped his growing fetus to sustain it. He developed a heart that beat twice as fast as Mary's. He had little arm buds and leg buds, and he had to develop. Six weeks into the process, he developed nipples. Six weeks into the process, he developed genital organs. Yes, he had sexual organs like every other baby born into our world. I know that's kind of weird to think about, but it's true. He was fully human. At one point, the creator of the universe was developing 
was a developing embryo the size of a kidney bean. He had an umbilical cord, a lifeline that provided him nourishment, it sustained his life, and everything that Mary consumed into her body was filtered through this child. Somehow the creator of the universe for nine months developed as any human would inside the womb of a mother. He was dependent on the nutritional health and lifestyle of a mother and was reliant on the care of a human to carry him through development, through birth, and through life. God put himself into the most vulnerable position in order that humanity would be rescued. And so do not think for a moment that God does not care for you. Let me say that again. Do not think for a moment that God does not care for you. He went to the greatest length imaginable to prove his love for you. He crossed an eternally wide void in order to bring us back to himself. Do not think for a moment that God does not care for you. Do not think for a moment that God does not love you. Jesus' stomach was filled with meconium, the black, tar-like substance made up of digestive secretion and amniotic fluid that upon his birth would be pooped out into the feeding trough he was lying in. Nothing was clean about this birth. It wasn't supernaturally clean. It was just as messy and bloody as any other birth is. Now, we often forget that he was conceived, like every other human, albeit certainly in a unique way, but he was conceived. He developed in a womb. He was pushed through a birth canal. He was covered in amniotic fluid. He cried upon taking his first breath. He pooped and he peed. He was nourished at Mary's breast. He grew. He went through all the developmental stages that children do. He felt proud when he took his first steps. He he struggled to communicate with babble and little words. He was a two-year-old. I know it's hard to imagine, but did he throw fits? (laughs) Did he stomp his feet? Did he steal from other boys and girls? Did he cry when somebody else took his stick? I would suggest not, personally. It's a different conversation. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn his letters. He had to make friends. He felt sad when he was bullied. He liked certain food. He disliked others. He had to learn a trade. He was completely and fully human. And at the same time, he was completely and fully God. And so this really gives us, I think, a whole new way of thinking about the Emmanuel in some ways. This idea that God is with us, certainly, but this idea is certainly lost on us as well. The fact that God is with us. He is not far off, but he is among humanity. And like I prayed earlier, he's not only among us because he's close to us in proximity, he is also with us in our fear and our worry and our anxiety and our anger and the, and the, uh, and the hurt and the sadness and, and, uh, and the anxiety and the stress and the pain and the joy and the excitement and all the celebrations. God is with us. And you must understand how important this is. As we look at the universal human condition that we all struggle with, you need to understand how important it is that God is with us. The author of Hebrews wrote this. He said, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
So when the Bible speaks of heaven, it often describes heaven in layers. It's kind of like an onion in some regards, uh, where there's uh, concentric circles working its way into the middle. Uh, The temple in the Old Testament was designed after the pattern of heaven that God had given Moses. And so if, you under, if you're familiar with the temple in the Old Testament, you have the court of the Gentiles on the outside, then you have the, 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 the holy place in the middle, and then you work your way into the middle to the holy of holies. Concentric circles working its way into where the presence of God is. And so the, the, the heaven is, is like the temple in the sense where God is in the middle. That is his dwelling place. That is where the throne room is. And so we have here in the middle of the heavens is where God dwells, and this is where Jesus has gone into. He has gone through the heavens all the way into the middle. God is with Uh, Jesus is with God. He is not on the periphery, far from the one who can strengthen us and help us in our time of need. God, uh, Jesus is with the Father, advocating on our our behalf, being an ambassador for our needs. God, Jesus is with the Father. He's gone all the way into the middle to where God resides. And so he has done the work. He has done the work. He has gone to the Father. So notice how important this is, right? He has done the work. We're, We're all trying to fix the problem. And we've fallen into this trap that suggests that we can, that, that maybe if I would just be good enough and kind enough and do enough good work and participate in enough ritual and, and go to church enough and, and give enough money to the church and say enough prayers and, and do all of these things, that maybe I can close the gap. That, that maybe I can fill my heart with, the, with the, the meaning and the purpose that I so desperately desire. That maybe I can climb the mountain high enough and I can reach life and I can reach God. Maybe I can do these things if I'm only good enough. But Jesus, being fully human, has done the perfect work that we could never do. And because he was and remains truly human, remembering what it was like to be weak and to get sick and to be tempted from every angle, when he represents us before the Father, he isn't looking down on us from some great height, patronizing us for how foolish and wretched we are. He's not standing on the periphery just looking down and saying, man, you guys are so horrible in your lost condition. You're never going to make it up here. You're never going to climb that mountain high enough. Man, you guys are screwed. Good luck, guys. That's not what he's saying. He is with us. He is fully human, experiencing everything that we could possibly experience. And he has taken that entire human experience as he has traveled all the way to the Father, to where the Father resides, and now he is our representative before the Father. He is not looking down on us from some great height, patronizing us for our mistakes and failures, thinking how lost we are. We're sort of some poor, wretched creatures who can't do anything for ourselves. He is truly sympathizing with us because he can truly empathize with us. He has experienced what it's like to be lonely. He's experienced what it's like to be fearful. He's experienced what it's like to be angry. He knows what the brokenness feels like. He was fully human. And so he is empathizing with us before the Father, sympathizing with us before the Father. He knows exactly what it's like. And so when you feel lonely, guess what? Jesus felt lonely too. And when you feel scared, guess what? Jesus felt scared too. And when you feel disgusted, guess what? Jesus can relate. And, and when you are angry, Jesus was angry too. And when you are sad, guess what? Jesus was sad too. And when you are worried, Jesus was worried too. And when you felt weak, guess what? Jesus felt weak too. He can relate. He can empathize. Do not think that he is far off, unable to relate to your situation. He is with you. And so any emotion or feeling or temptation or struggle that is common to humanity, Jesus experienced it. And because 
he was controlled by love, right? Because he had the divine nature. He had the strength to resist temptation. Though he experienced temptation, he had the strength to resist it. He had the joy to defeat depression. Though he experienced sadness, he was full of the joy of God to defeat it. He had the contentment to ward off entitlement. Though there were things I'm sure he wanted, he knew that contentment did not reside in the things of this world. He had the presence of mind to be grateful for all things. So, so even in the times when there was hurtful and painful, he always gave thanks to the Father. He had the righteousness to direct his anger at injustice. And so instead of being angry in his selfishness, he looked at the wrongs of the world and he got angry at those. And he had the knowledge of the presence of God to ward off loneliness. And so even though he experienced great loneliness in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the most prominent examples, he knew that God was always with him. And he had the trust to keep him from fear. And the point is that when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he went to the very heart of heaven. He went to where God is. He went into his throne room to the very Father himself. He didn't go to some resting place satisfied with what he had done. Now we can lay down. Finally, my work is accomplished. I can go and rest. He went to the Father's inner courtroom so he could intercede and represent us before the Father. My friends, you have an advocate. And he is a good advocate because he's been where you are. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to reflect on this for a few moments. So here's the thing. When we come to pray before the Father, when we come to pray before the Father, <laughs> sorry, that's good, that's good, that's fine. When we come to pray before the Father, we're not shouting across some great gulf. We're not trying to shout, wondering, man, can God even hear me? God, where are you? We're not shouting across some infinite gulf. We're, try, no, we're not trying to catch the attention of someone who has little or no concern for us. We are approaching the throne of grace, the text says. We are approaching the very throne of grace. We are in the inner circle. We are in the throne room. We are approaching the throne of grace. Because Jesus stands as our advocate, we are within the throne room. We are asked and given permission to approach God boldly and with confidence because he who is fully ho- human, knowing us fully, flaws and all, right? Sin and all. He is standing before the Father as our representative, as our advocate. We are offered grace and mercy if we approach God through Jesus. Mercy to forgive us from sins, but grace to strengthen us on our journey. You see, we have the condition that we can never solve. We have a gap that we can never cross. The mountain is too tall, we can never climb it. We've committed a wrong that we can never right, but Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus, I love that phrase, but Jesus, but Jesus. Jesus. The, he, the perfect human, having experienced everything that we could possibly experience, but loving through it all. He offers us his life for our old condition. And so I don't know where you guys are at this morning. I don't know what uh, fear or anxiety or worry or, or, or greatness is happening in your life right now. I don't know where you are. We need to know this. Jesus, the one who is fully human and the, the advocate on our behalf, because of the life he lived, because he was fully God and fully human, because this is what Christmas tells us about Jesus. I love this. He offers us, in exchange for our death, in exchange for our sin, he, ex- he offers us his life. He offers us his courage in exchange for our fear. And he offers us his contentment in exchange for our anxiety. And he offers us his joy in exchange for our sadness. And he offers us his company in exchange for our loneliness. 
He offers us his love in exchange for our hatred and our anger. He offers us his spirit to give us a new life this morning. And so what does Christmas tell us about Jesus? It tells us that we are not alone. That whatever situation you are going through, whatever struggle you are going through, whatever, whatever uh, condition your life is currently in, you are not alone. When you feel weak and tired and scared, when you feel anxious and worried and stressed, when you feel excited and happy, you are not alone. And this is what Christmas tells us about Jesus. We wrote a, we wrote a book uh, about a year ago to kind of help people understand this process. And if you've never seen this, I would encourage you to take it. They're, they're in the foyer and also the back hallway. Take a look at this. Read through it. Keep it on your coffee table. It's full of uh, beautiful diagrams and pictures and whatnot. But it's a wonderful, beautiful story of the role that Jesus plays in our redemption and our salvation. And if you have a friend who is in need of one of these, take a couple of them, hand them out to people you may know. Father in heaven, you've done such a good work in us. And for those who may not even know you this morning, Father, who are still questioning, it's like, man, do I even believe in this Jesus guy? And that's okay, man, you brought them here. And whatever, whatever life situation is being thrown at them right now, I pray that they would find a peace. Not because of their hard work, not because of their attempts to just try harder, but because of what you have already done. And that you have done it, Father, and you have done it, and you've offered it in exchange. Father, all you say is, here is my peace. I, I, I'm giving it to you. Will, you. will you hand me the craziness that is your life, and I will hand you my peace. It's a beautiful, beautiful exchange that you're offering us. It's a totally unfair exchange on your behalf, but man, the cross, Jesus, you, you went to the cross so that we might find life, and that we might find salvation, Father, that you would take upon our death and our sin upon yourself, and that we would live from that day forward. And so, Father, you do not want us to live in anger and in worry and in anxiety and in fear any longer. So you said, you have, I've put these to death. Do not allow these to control you anymore. I have put these to death. Now trust in me and let me do the good work that I have designed my son to do in you. And so my friends, allow God to come into your hearts and into your life this morning. Open them up. Cry out to God. Say, God, I need you. I cannot do this any longer on my own. That's all it takes. It's a simple reception. God, I recognize I'm broken. I recognize I am a sinner, God. I recognize I am lost and in need of you. I recognize this, Father, but heal me. You say through your Son, through the, through the shed blood of your Son, Father, for him taking upon my death and my sin, you said that you can heal me. And that you can offer me your peace and your life and, and your joy and your contentment. I so desperately long for these, God. Please begin to do your good work in me. I beg of you, God, please do that now. And here's the beautiful thing, my friends, that if you've done that, if you pray that prayer even just now, if you've done that in your life, then, then, then God is going to create in you a new creation. And he's going to bring you to life, and he's going to bring you to himself. He will fill you with himself so that you can really live this life the way you were designed and created to live. Amen? Amen.